0: I went to go visit a good high school friend who was at the University of Texas, all right? We went to pray for him. His lost soul. I'm just kidding, all right? Our time would have been better spent if we hadn't prayed for him because instead what we did was this. We got to his apartment one day and we were waiting for him to come back for class. We had some time on our hands. We were just hanging out waiting for him. And so we were in his apartment and he lived by himself actually. We were there all by ourselves waiting on him. And so mischievousness struck us, all right? And so we went to his fridge and I found a few slices of bologna, all right? And I took the said slices of deli meat and I tucked them inside and inside the actual air vent that was right above and in his living room. Not a problem through the fall as AC was kicking, right? Uh, But he noticed through the months of October uh, and September, there was kind of a faint odor that was kind of emitting from his living room. He couldn't really identify that said odor, didn't really know what was going on exactly, but he knew that something was a little off, all right? Uh, Now, it wasn't so bad that he didn't necessarily call in maintenance crews yet until winter hit, right? And then the heat turned on, all right? And as hot air blowed over that deli slices of meat, all right, through the vent, that place became, frankly, Toxicating, and you couldn't even live there, all right? So he had called maintenance crews in, trying to define and identify the source of the horrible smell. Maintenance crews unpacked everything, looked in pipes, looked in vents, couldn't find anything, could never find the source of the issue, all right? Finally, one weekend, he was just depressed and discouraged. He decided he would just take off, all right? And so he went somewhere else because he couldn't handle it anymore. And he came back after a weekend away and he found a horrible, moldy stand on his couch, all right? Where he began to look up and notice that there was something dripping and that meat had liquefied, all right? And it began to drip and not just ruined his couch, but it made that place absolutely unlivable. Now, why do I tell you that? Don't report me to the police, all right? Statue of limitations on said experiences, right? But I tell you guys that story because at least I think for him, there was an unseen enemy that he was facing, all right? He knew that something was going awry, but he couldn't locate it. He couldn't identify it. It was an unseen threat to his very life, all right? To this very sanctity of his home, all right? And little did he know this because of all of his apparently best high school friends, all right? Uh, at least that was my friend's experience. I'll tell you guys, as we look at 1 Peter 5, we're going to look at our unseen enemy, all right? And it's going to be a little bit more intimidating than a few slices of baloney inside of a vent that makes life smell bad. All right. We're going to look specifically at an unseen enemy that thwarts your life, whose very desire and very purpose is to destroy you. Why are we here this morning? Why are we kind of jumping into this topic in our series on college college matters this uh, summer? Why are we here? If you guys remember a few weeks ago, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, we not just have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that relationship with Jesus Christ is absolutely secure. Uh, Marty Scott talked about the topic of eternal security, that no matter uh, what you could do, you could never merit eternal life. You could never merit and qualify for a relationship with God on the basis of what you could do. And so not only did you not merit that relationship, but you also can't lose it. You didn't gain a relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of performance and you can't lose it on the basis of performance. You have a relationship that is eternally secure. That nothing can separate you from the hand of Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. Uh, Last week talked, or two weeks ago, uh, the week after that we talked a little bit about um, the fact that we've been given the Holy Spirit. We have an opportunity to walk with an incredible resource. And so as we looked at those two weeks, really you should come to the conclusion that it ought to be easy to walk with Jesus Christ. It ought to be natural to be growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ because if we have these incredible resources known as the Holy Spirit and we have a relationship with God that is absolutely safe and secure, then surely we can take a risk and surely we can be growing. The reality is we find that often it's not easy at all to walk with Jesus Christ. That often we find that there are opponents to us and to our walk with Jesus Christ that are not just external, but even there are internal ones at times as well. That walking with Jesus Christ is incredibly difficult. Well, why is that so? What I want to do this morning is provide you an answer to that question and then how we deal with that opponent, all right? Specifically, we're going to look at the person of Satan this morning. If this would be a great Halloween message but it's not Halloween all right but here we are all right uh, who is our opponent who is our unseen enemy i want you guys to see exactly who satan is and how satan is out to destroy us that's where we're going to be first peter chapter 5 i want you guys to pick it up in verse 8 verses 8 to 11 peter tells us this that be of sober spirit be on the alert your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Really, Peter begins this passage with three basic commands I'm going to give you guys this morning. But the first is this. I think it's a command essentially to uh, wake up, to wake up. Notice verse 8. Again, notice what Peter says here. He says, be of sober spirit. He's calling his audience to sobriety. (laughs) Wake up. The text will say, be on the alert. And and Peter's point here simply is that there's an opponent who's against you. And don't be lulled to sleep. Wake up. Be on the alert. Don't be drifted and lulled to sleep thinking that everything is going to be okay if you don't realize who this opponent is. Peter says, wake up. Why? Why is it so important to wake up? Because there's an actual battle going on. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Peter's point here in chapter 5, Paul's point in Ephesians 6, is there is a battle going on for your actual soul. If you know Jesus Christ, the battle is whether you will come to have, or if you don't know Jesus Christ, the battle is whether you will come to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But even if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that opponent wants to destroy your life and make your life an absolute waste. There's a battle going on that is not one you can see. It's not flesh and blood, but it's about spiritual forces and demons, all right? Some of you guys, if you're anything like me, I'm an engineer by trade. Actually, I was a computer engineer back here at Texas A&M way back when, all right? I am a see and uh, put my hands on uh, things kind of guy, all right? I'm not a big faith, big kind of see the mysterious kind of stuff. Some of you guys are way more mystic, way more uh, faith-based, way more able to trust even when you cannot see. Some of us kind of fall on those two different spectrums. And when it comes to the conversation of demons and Satan, I think often, uh, often we fall on those two spectrums as well. Some of us either dismiss those kinds of things completely, or some of us not only recognize them, but we get so caught up in them that we're overwhelmed by them. C.S. Lewis will speak to those two extremes when he says this. And I think it's a fascinating quote. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, to disregard them entirely. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist who dismisses the devils and the demons or a magician who is completely unraveled and enraptured in them with the same delight. What I want to do this morning for you guys as we look at this topic is I don't want you guys to run to either of those extremes. I don't want you guys to disregard them entirely. I want you guys to wake up and realize there's a battle going on right now for your very life. But I also don't want you to get so overwhelmed believing them to be true that you get completely enraptured and thinking everything's about demons and devils. All right, I I want to give you guys and land you guys kind of in the middle with a sense of balance. How are we going to do that? Specifically, we're going to do that in, in two basic ways this morning. The first is that I want you guys to actually have a better sense of who your enemy is. If you actually have some knowledge, then you know that he does exist and you're not going to get completely caught off guard and and pulled away into all kinds of crazy, overwhelmed uh, obsessions with demons and devils, all right? I want you guys to specifically kind of know who he is, how he works. I'll tell you guys, um, this past week I had an opportunity to pull away with some of my best college roommates uh, and we do a reunion once a year, all right? In college, uh, some of you guys may know this, but in college we called ourselves the Stables, all right? That was kind of our apartment name, all right? Because there was a waitress our freshman year who was gunning for a tip who named each of us stallions, all right? So we're like, that's right, stallions. We live in a stables, all right? So things were off and running, all right? And we actually had date parties where we made t-shirts with like horses on them, all right? I don't know what we were doing, all right? I have no idea what we were doing, Right. <laughs> A few young ladies each year got blessed by those t-shirts, all right? And so, uh, but, uh, but every, after college, every year we get together for a little reunion, all right? And in our reunion, we call it man mania, all right? It's that of manly, all right? We cook out a bunch of meat, and then we kind of do the same thing every year, all right? We cook out a ton, and then we pay, play a lot of video games. With the World Cup going on, all right, there had to be some serious FIFA, of course. Nothing would be more appropriate, all right? But every year, we play some serious Call of Duty, all right? Some of you guys know uh, you got to have some kind of shoot-up game because there's nothing like male community when you can just flat-out kill one another. And so there's nothing more glorious than just completely wailing on one another, coming up behind one of your buddies, knifing them and killing them. It's just glorious, all right? I'm not trying to be prideful here, but I I was the best in in the apartment, all right? And so I'm wailing on all of my roommates, laughing like a devil, all right? Having a great time, all right? And here's the thing is my roommates all knew that I was coming to kill them in the game, right? But the problem is my roommates had no idea where I was, no idea how I operated. Before they knew where I was coming out of, I had just killed them already. It was over. See, you can know who your enemy is... But if you don't know how your enemy operates, you have no chance in standing guard. My roommates still have no chance standing guard against me, all right? In Call of Duty, all right? That's why they call it Ghost, right? I'm Ghost, all right? Now, as we look at, uh, as we look at this enemy, this spiritual enemy specifically, what I want you to do is you know that he's coming after you, but I want you guys specifically to see how he operates, all right? I'm going to show you guys two basic things about Satan this morning. The first is going to be his identity, and the second is going to be his methodology, you know he's coming for you, but I want you to be able to recognize him, and I want you to be able to recognize how he works. That's where we're going to go this morning, all right? So basically, off the top, I want you guys to see his identity. Uh, it's interesting, as you look at First Peter chapter 5, again, verse 8, notice what Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil. The devil is one who is absolutely opposed to you. He is your adversary, And specifically, he's like me in Call of Duty that he wants to devour you. Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to swallow you whole. There's no if and or buts about it. The devil wants to consume you and destroy you. Yet for a lot of us, we don't really give him a lot of credence. We don't necessarily uh, recognize his existence very often. We often dismiss him or belittle him. And one of the things I want to do is cause you like Peter's going to do here. Wake up. There's an opponent who is after you who wants to destroy you. Uh, one of the best passages on uh, the devil comes in John, uh, or in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. It says that we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That he is out to destroy you and that actually as we look at the present world order, he has an amazing amount of power in this day and time. Paul will speak of him, I think in Ephesians 2, he will say that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. That in this current age, the devil does have a lot of power. That's why John will say that he, the world lies in the power of the evil one. That he is incredibly powerful. And so for what purpose? What is it he wants to do? He wants to destroy you. He wants to lead you to temptation and to sin. And then he wants to destroy you completely. How does he do that though? What is his methodology, if you will, this morning? I think one of the best passages on this concept comes in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul says this. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. If you're not aware how the devil, your adversary works, then you are going to be vulnerable to him. And what I want to do this morning is show you a few passages this morning where we pull the curtain back and we show you how the devil works against you. I'm going to give you guys three basic ideas of how the devil works that have been tried and true that are there all the way from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, all right? The devil works the same way almost all the time. Three basic ways. And as we begin, let me give you guys the first. I think the first thing the devil likes to do is he likes to deceive you. The devil's end goal is to tempt you into sin and that sin is going to lead to death. And how does he do that? The first way that he'll tempt you into sin, a sin that leads to death, is by deceiving you. He'll deceive you about the truth. He'll deceive you about the sin. He'll deceive you about the results of your choices. The devil is by nature a deceiver. John puts it like this in chapter 8, uh, verse 44, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's not truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. The very nature of Satan is to lie. That's all he knows to do. For whatever reason, whenever I read John 8, all I can think of is the movie The Elf. When Buddy the Elf is staring at Santa, just saying, Santa, you sit on a throne of lies, he recognizes that the department store Santa is a complete hoax. He's a complete facsimile. He is just all about deception, all right? For whatever reason, I can't get past the elf, John eight forty all right? But in the same way, right, Satan is a deceiver. He is known as the accuser. All he wants to do is deceive you. He twists truth. In fact, you see this over and over again. If you want uh flip, here, if you hold your, hold your finger here in first Peter five, I want you guys to flip over to Genesis chapter three. I want you guys to see from the very first moment that Satan shows up. I want you guys to see how Satan works from the very first moment. that Satan shows up the very first thing that he does. He deceives he twists the truth. Notice what happens in Genesis chapter 3. God has created Adam and Eve. He's created all of creation. He said that it's all good. He creates Eve. He looks out on all that he's done and he says it's incredibly good. To that good creation, Satan enters in and he says to Eve and Adam this in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Thankfully, the woman recognizes the lie here in verse two. And she says, Eve says to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. It's fascinating here. Satan takes a little aspect of the truth and he distorts it. In terms of what the Garden of Eden was, it was an amazingly lush and lavish garden with all kinds of trees. All right. So God had provided to Adam and Eve all kinds of trees that bore fruit in their season that they could eat from, except for one tree in a giant garden, right? God says to them, eat from any tree you want, except for this one, one basic tiny tree in the midst of this huge, lavish garden. But what does Satan do as he comes to Adam and Eve? Notice the text again, verse one. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? God had said, you can eat from any tree except one. What Satan does here to Adam and Eve is what he does all the time. He diminishes the provision of God and he emphasizes the prohibition of God. God had given to Adam and Eve a whole bunch of stuff. And he had said, you cannot have this one tree. Do not eat from it. And Satan comes along and says, Didn't God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? God did not say that at all. And even as Eve corrects Satan, even in her correction, she's inaccurate. When she says, God is, uh, you shall not eat from it or touch it. He did not say they couldn't touch it. Even she's emphasizing prohibition more. She's falling under prey of what Satan does as he diminishes the provision, the lavish provision of God, and always emphasizes the prohibition of God. What God has said you cannot have. That's what Satan always does. Satan always twists the truth. He's always distorting the truth. Notice the way the rest of Genesis unfolds. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God had said, if you eat, you will die. Satan says, you won't die. Completely lies to her straightened face. Verse five, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In verse five, there's an aspect of that. That's true. They will know good and evil, maybe in a way they hadn't experienced before, but it is not that they're going to be like God. Satan always deceives. I'll tell you guys, as you look at your own lives, you can flip back. Keep your finger here in Genesis 3. We'll come back a little bit. But even as you look at your own lives, every single time we're tempted in sin, I promise you there's a lie that you're buying into that's sitting there determining your choice. Every single time that you fall into some kind of sin, you're believing some lie. Satan has come along and he's distorted the truth that God has delivered to you and you've bought into a lie that he's got you hook, line, and sinker on. Every single time we fall into sin, we've fallen into a lie that he's delivered over to us and that we've bought into. Adam and Eve will take the fruit of the tree that they weren't to eat and they will eat and they will die. They will take what was not theirs. They will be tempted and they will sin and then they will die. Satan's never honest about what's going to happen. He's never honest to get you to take what you should not be taking and he's never honest with you before that as to what's actually going to happen. (laughs) The results and the consequences of sin are often seen way more clearly on the after side of that sin than on the front side when Satan's lying to us and to our faces. What Satan does over and over again is that he's a father of lies. If you want a few more passages on the Second Corinthians 4, verse 4, uh, Paul says that he blinds the mind of the unbelieving, that he's constantly deceiving those who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1, Paul tells us that Satan is often at work causing the church to believe false doctrine, to believe lies that Satan has delivered over to the church. That's what Satan always does. Well, how do we defend against that? How do we fight that? Uh, let me challenge you guys to know the truth of the word of God. Buddy the elf will go right at false department store Santa because he knows the real thing, right? In the same way, the way that you determine what, the, what is the lie is that you actually have to know the truth. To be able to pull out the lie that Satan is trying to deliver to you, you have to actually know the truth of the word of God. Let me challenge you, if you don't have yet a, a personal practice in your life of getting into the word of God on a daily basis, you need to start. The only way that you're going to defend yourself against Satan coming to destroy your life is if you know the word of God that is the antidote to that lie. That is the antidote to that disease that he's trying to inflict you with. Do you know the word of God? Do you know who God is? Do you know his character? Do you know his promises? Do you know his purposes? Because if you don't, you are defenseless against what Satan's trying to do. That's why we have Sunday mornings. That's why we jump into the word of God. It's also why we have Thursday nights in small groups because we want you guys to learn how to jump into the word of God yourself to study it yourself, to feel like you're able to jump in. And if you don't know how to do that, if you feel so insecure with the word of God, you do not have to know all the answers. There are always people who have seemed like they know more than us. And for some of us, it's really intimidating just to open the word of God. It's really intimidating to even jump into a small group. And when we do that, we're allowing Satan to do exactly what he wants to do in our lives, to keep us from the word of God, to keep us from knowing the truth of the word of God so that we are now no longer able to defend ourselves against his attack. Satan loves to deceive. He also loves to do something else. Not only does he love to deceive, he loves to distort pleasure. And I think this is the most interesting one of all. Satan loves to take pleasure that you desire and he loves to twist it in such a way that it becomes sin. One of my favorite quotes ever uh, of what sin can be is someone once said that sin is taking a legitimate longing in illegitimate direction. The sin is taking a legitimate longing, something that you are naturally created to desire and want and Satan moves you to pursue it in an illegitimate way or in an illegitimate direction. Do we all want a relationship with someone? Yes. <laughs> but what Satan does, he, calls, he comes alongside of us and he causes us to pursue that desire for a relationship in a way that we weren't called to and a way that we weren't commanded to. We fall into sin and we fall into something and experience something that God never intended us to experience that frankly is way worse than the unfulfilled desire we had going into it. What Satan loves to do Again, is to de-emphasize God's incredible provision in your life, emphasize his prohibition in your life so that he creates an environment of discontentment in your life. And in that discontentment in your life, Satan comes along and he knocks on the door and he begins to whisper and he says, do you think God is really good? Comes to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and he says, God did not say this and that. And they fall into it. And I want you guys, if you guys flip back to Genesis chapter three, verse five, I want you guys to notice exactly the words that the writer uses to describe what happens in the mind and in the heart of Adam and Eve. Notice verse five, again, Genesis three. Notice what happens after, after Satan comes and he lies to them and notice what happens in verse five. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it fulfilled a desire, that it was something that she wanted, And that it was a delight to the eyes, that it looked good. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that it seemed to appeal to everything that she was wired and created for. She took from its fruit and ate. That when she saw that something was good, that when it appealed to her unfulfilled desires, then she took. And the results that she gives into Adam and then they die and they're going to be banished from the garden in Genesis 3. Genesis 3's story of the fall is a classic example of how Satan works all the time. Comes in and he distorts the truth. Then he comes and he appeals to your unfulfilled desires. And he says, I think God is holding out on you. God's not good. If God was good, you'd have that very thing that you want. If God was good, you wouldn't be struggling. You wouldn't be suffering. You wouldn't be groaning along, waiting on something that you're desiring for. So Satan comes and he knocks and he says, did God really say don't do this or do this? Do you think God's really good? Because if God were really good, then why would you be struggling? Maybe God is good, but maybe God is not powerful and able to resolve your problem. So in that place where we think that either God is not good or God is not powerful, we begin to fall prey to the very thing that Satan is offering us. And then we take and we experience something that's contrary to what he promised us. Emptiness, death, isolation, alienation, regret, and guilt. That's how Satan works all the time. One of my favorite quotes on this whole topic, uh, again, is C.S. Lewis. And he says this in one of his books called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've not read that book, it's a must read. All right. If you guys have some time this summer, I'd highly encourage you guys to read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It it, essentially is a book about uh, the devil training his demons to tempt humanity. All right. So you kind of get a little sense of the inner working of how devils and demons actually work and how they tempt, which gives you a sense of how to defend. Again, what are their ploys? What are the methodology? All right. Here's what he says speaking of a a training devil to a demon, he says this, that everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us, the demons. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground, meaning God's ground, right? I know we have won many a soul through pleasure and all the same, it is his invention, not ours. God created satisfaction. God created your desires. They are that which is, as the demons are saying, the enemy's ground or God's ground. He made the pleasures and all our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. I love this quote. Are you created to have your desires fulfilled? Yes. But what happens when they're not necessarily fulfilled in the current moment that you're in? What about those moments where you feel lonely? Are there those moments that you feel frustrated because something hasn't unfolded in your life the way that you wanted? I'll tell you, my greatest moments of temptation always come when I'm discouraged and I'm tired, and at least for me as a male, when I'm hungry. All right, tummy's empty and life is about to fall apart. All right, I have no faith whatsoever. All right, my wife has learned this: no big conversations until I'm full. All right, then we can actually reason. All right, I'm actually worthwhile. All right, but seriously. Temptation is always at its strongest when there's some desire you have that's unfulfilled, right? You're lonely. You're stressed. You're heartbroken. You're frustrated. You feel unable to meet some kind of goal that you want. And it's in that moment that again, the devil comes and he starts knocking. Why don't you think God allowed that in your life? Why don't you think God wants you to have a date? Why don't you think God wants you to get into this degree? Why don't you think God wants you to have this or to have that or to have this or that? And then all of a sudden we begin to question whether God's good, whether he's powerful. And then we begin to think that what the devil offers sounds better. And what I love about this quote is the idea that basically what the devil does and what the demons do is they come and they tempt us to take and to experience satisfaction in an area that we're not experiencing satisfaction and to do it in a way, at a time, in a way or in a degree that God forbids. Does God want you to experience sex? Yes, he created it. I think he knows a little something about it. But for whatever reason, he said, I want you to experience it within these contours and within these confines. And what the devil does is says, hey, oh, don't worry about those prohibitions. Not a big deal. Don't you want to experience this? Don't you want to experience that? It's not just sex. It's every realm of our life. It's greed. It's frustration. It's whatever it is that we don't feel satisfied in. Satan comes and goes, I want you to experience satisfaction interesting to me in 1st Peter 5 in this very passage about the devil notice verse 10 why does he bring up the topic of suffering notice he says in verse 10 after you've suffered for a little while the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you why does he bring up the topic of suffering well first I think as you look at the book of 1st Peter one of the things we realize is that suffering is a very normal experience for the believer in Jesus Christ why because this life is not the life that we're ultimately looking for and that we're ultimately hoping for. That if we're not experiencing some level of dissatisfaction, then we've missed the world that we're looking for because this is not the kingdom. This is not heaven. We're waiting on a future day where that king will return and he'll establish a kingdom and we'll actually be in his presence. And in that day, all of our desires will be fulfilled to the very height that we were created to, f- to experience fulfillment. But until that day, don't confuse the day that you're in doesn't mean that this time and in this period of life is going to have no satisfaction. It's going to have amazing satisfaction. And the satisfaction is simply a teaser and a taste of what's coming ultimately. And this is a foreshadow of what's coming to an extent and to a degree that you can't even imagine. But don't get confused in the midst of this present period when you're not experiencing the fulfillment of all satisfactions and desires that you want. Don't confuse the days. Satan comes into suffering and he says that God's holding out on you, that God wants something Uh, God doesn't want you to have something. The reality is God's not holding out on you at all. That if you know Jesus Christ, then he's going to deliver to you all of his riches and all of his glories in a day that's coming. It's just not this day. So don't get confused about the day. Realize there's going to be some element of waiting, some element of self-control that's necessary, which is why I want to tell you guys, as you look at suffering, as you look at those times and those places in your life where you don't yet experience fulfillment, let me say this, exercise self-control and patience not taking what you want when God hasn't provided it and waiting for when God will provide it. Temptation is always taking what we don't feel fulfilled in at a place and at a time that we deem that we want, not at a place and a time that God has provided. That's what sin always is, taking a legitimate longing, something we were created for, and moving us in pursuit of it in an illegitimate way. Either in a place or at a time or with a person that we were not called and commanded to experience it. That's what sin always does. So what Satan loves to do is he loves to take us and distort those very pleasures. So let me give you guys the third thing that he does. Not only does he deceive, but he distorts pleasure. And then lastly, he divides and he conquers. I think this is a fascinating one. In John chapter 17, uh, Jesus praying for his disciples says this. He prays that they would, uh, they would be kept from the evil one, the devil. Why? What does he hope to accomplish in their life if they're kept from the evil one? Well, it's this, that they may be one, even as the Father and I are one. That essentially what Jesus is praying for uh, in that last, uh, in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, is he's praying that his disciples would experience unity. And he's praying that they would be kept from the devil. And if they're going to be kept from the devil, then they can experience unity. And so you begin to realize really quickly that what the devil wants to do is disunify the body of Jesus Christ. That what the devil wants to do is divide and conquer one another. The devil wants you to think that you're the only one experiencing what you're experiencing. The devil wants you to think that your failures are the only one, that that no one else is experiencing those failures. The devil wants you to uh, believe and uh, actually expect that what you're wanting for, what you're not finding fulfillment in, you're the only one experiencing. You're different. You stand apart. And then he begins to isolate you in the midst of that place. It's fascinating to me back in 1 uh, uh, Peter chapter 5. Notice what he says in verse 9. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith. Why? How do you resist the devil? Notice what he says here at the end. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. What the devil wants to do is isolate you and make you think that you're the only one who's experiencing something. And Peter says to a group who's being isolated, no, no, no. no. What you are experiencing, others are experiencing as well. So don't stay quiet and don't stay hidden. The very thing that I hope for you guys in terms of your experience within a church setting is that you guys would connect and that you'd confess sin even in community. But honestly, we can gather here on a Sunday morning, right? We can have community. But what level of life exchange are we actually having? You guys need to be experiencing community. This is a starting spot where we're reminded of truth. We have an opportunity to collectively and corporately worship. But what you guys ultimately and most significantly need is an experience within community where people know you and that you're open to them. They know the good about you and they know the bad. Because when sin stays hidden and it stays in secret, that's when it's powerful. The moment your sin, the moment your failures are brought out on the table, they're diffused and all the power is gone, right? But in secretness and in hiddenness, your accuser continues to accuse you of your failures and remind you this is all you are. All you are is how you fail. But in the Christian community, when those confessions and that stuff comes out and it gets put on the table, we are able to recognize as a group, no, we are not our failures because we have one who's forgiven us. Our enemy is an accuser. Our savior is a redeemer. And our savior is more powerful than our accuser which is why death did not hold him, but he rose from the grave after three days after death on a cross. And his resurrection shows that he's more powerful over sin and death than the devil. That's our hope. And the Christian community is supposed to be a place where that hope is experienced. When our sins are brought out in the light, we find community, we find authenticity. And in that place, we find forgiveness, we find reconciliation, not just with God himself, but even within the community. A community reminds us who reminds us we're not our failures that our failures are not the end of us and they are not the mark of our identity. What we're marked by is the fact that we've been bought for a price by a savior who's come, who's given his life up for us so that we can be something different. That's my hope for you guys is that as you look at the way that the enemy comes at you, do you realize that he's going to try to isolate you? Uh, I had an opportunity uh, on a long plane trip to Europe this summer, like watching four movies, all right? One of them was Divergent. I don't know if you guys have seen Divergent, all right? Some of you guys have like read all the books, all right? Seems a little bit like Hunger Games to me, but kind of different, right? All right, Uh, but there's a group of people who don't fit a certain class of things, and so what ends up happening is that everyone wants to, in a sense, bury them and obscure them and remove them but eventually two people who are divergent, who of course have to both be beautiful and have to both fall in love, right? uh, Are gonna come together, right? That movie's got like romance, it's got fighting, it's got something for everybody, women and men, all right? So, uh, but again, the idea is let's keep these divergent people who are different, let's make them think they're alone and let's remove them from community. Let's let them not find one another. Let's keep them suppressed and hidden so we can remove them and destroy them. It's exactly what Satan does to the church of Jesus Christ. Let's separate, let's divide and conquer like fire logs. Let's remove the logs of fire so that the fire will die out. What we are as a church is nothing more than a a fire in a sense where the logs have to be brought together because when the logs are brought together, the fire picks up. You need one another. You need a kind of experience of community in which you can find authenticity because in that kind of community, you'll find that sins are brought out, (laughs) that we realize the church is just a walking wounded, that no one is perfect. Everyone is struggling And it doesn't take that much courage to actually open up and confess that when we realize that no one's perfect. And for whatever reason, in the Bible Belt, in the state of Texas, we love to make ourselves look like everything's taking up, or everything's put together, everything's ship shop, ship shop, ship shape, whatever that phrase is, right? Everything looks good, all right? Uh, We get all dressed up, everything seems fine in our spiritual life. The reality is we're all struggling. We're all broken. Your weekend probably showed just how broken you were, maybe this very weekend. (laughs) with whatever it is you struggled through, whatever it is that you fell to, you're not alone. But until you actually speak up, until you actually are honest and find some authenticity in a kind of community, you may continue to believe that you're alone. In which case, you continue to fall under the very attack and the very methodology of the enemy who wants to not just divide and conquer you, but wants to cause you to be deceived and wants to distort pleasure. The reality is, as Peter will end this section though, is that we can resist our enemy. Notice what he says, verse nine, but resist him firm in your faith, Again, there's an opportunity you and I have. We have an enemy who's incredibly powerful. Let us not be deluded to the fact that he exists and that he's powerful. You cannot go toe-to-toe with the devil and win. All right? Of course, the great hope and the great encouragement is you don't have to go toe-to-toe with the devil and win. But you have one who is your aid, who's come alongside not just to comfort you, not just to convict the world of sin, but has come to be a helper. And the Spirit of God is able... uh, because of what Jesus Christ has done to give you a power to overcome temptation, to overcome sin, that there is an option and there is a way out. Let us not be confused. The devil and his devices are powerful, but we have one who is even more powerful. So let me pray for us. And then as we have an opportunity this this morning to respond and worship, I want you to think through the one who is powerful, the one who died on your behalf, who gave his life for you so that you would not be identified by your failures and that you would not be enslaved to them any longer as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are more powerful than our enemy an enemy who seeks and desires to destroy and devour us. I thank you that you are more powerful, that we need not be afraid, that we need not quiver. We need not tremble, that we have one who comes riding on a horse in victory. We have one who's strong, who's powerful, that even sin and death could not hold him as the sins of the world were put on him. But we have one who is victorious three days later in resurrection who shows that he is powerful over our enemies. And Father, I pray this morning, if we don't know you, Lord, I pray that we would today make a decision to trust you maybe for the first time. Maybe the first time realize that we don't have to be enslaved to our sins or that we don't have to continue to live in guilt, but that you died on our behalf so that guilt could be removed, that condemnation could be reversed, and that we could have life in you. And for those of us who know you this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be deluded by the way the enemy attacks us. you would help us to be woken up to and sober to the way that the enemy comes to devour our life. That he constantly looks to deceive us. He constantly looks to twist pleasure and he constantly looks to divide and conquer us. And in a summer when often we can be removed from our existing relationships and friendships, Lord, I pray that you would help us to find community with one another. That we'd be willing to go deep. We'd be willing to build new relationships, new friendships, maybe even today over lunch. To be willing to take a step of courage and a step of faith to befriend someone and go deeper. Uh, Maybe this week with a conversation with a friend to say, hey, I'm struggling with this and I need you to know. I need someone to ask me hard questions. I need someone to care and to see what's going on in my life. And I'm not going to allow it to stay hidden any longer. Lord, we love you and we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us that your strength is perfected in our weakness, Lord, that you come in the midst of those places and those times and you identify with us and you say, I love you and I care mightily for you and I want to see something different for you. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen.